Welcome back to the Up Your Dialogue podcast. I'm your host, L.A. Lundy, and here with me as always is Jay Scott Pardon. Today is uh, Sunday. Sunday is September 25th, to be exact. It has been probably four months or so since we did a podcast. Um, and when we started this podcast back in, I believe, 2019, things were not even as bad as they are now. So now things here in 2022 are to the point where it's very much an us against them mentality. Um where you we are putting people into groups and these groups cannot have discussions uh, across uh, across the groups. Um, you have people like Ben Shapiro going to a podcasting event and the podcasting group apologizing for the fact that he was brought there and nobody was told about it. And they felt that you know people could have been harmed uh, just by the mere presence of somebody like Ben Shapiro showing up at a public event. Uh, so we've gotten very far off the rails on this inability to have fruitful discussions. Um, and as a result, we're having a lot of problems even getting anything done either politically or being able to have conversations cross-culturally. And so the podcast really was started and continues to be a platform uh, that allows these different lenses to come and have a dialogue. And so we're upping our dialogue. It's the name of our website, upyourdialogue.com. We do have a Twitter account at upyourdialogue um, where we converse from time to time. Uh, we do plan on being able to get this podcast into different channels on the different platforms in the future. We do plan on doing more podcasts in the future um, as time permits. Hopefully we can get on some sort of a regular schedule because uh, there are many things to talk about and we're not having those discussions as part of the culture, part of the political uh, environment that we're currently in. We try the format of this tries to be one where you have a back and forth uh, where we'll have either a topic or a framework for a topic and then um, you know, we'll, we'll get one point of view and then we'll get another point of view uh, and then we'll have a discussion and see where that leads. Sometimes that leads to one specific topic. Sometimes that will run the gamut on several topics. Um, what we're going to do for this next podcast is we're going to have a discussion about uh, what we call terms and definitions. One of the things that we focus on up your dialogue is defining our terms, um, not engaging in attacking or just redefining things and coming up with our own ideas of things. Uh, believe it or not, even between the Christian worldview and the agnostic, and the agnostic worldview, there is uh, an idea that truth does exist. Um, we might have a different idea about what the nature of the truth is, but objective truths, not just subjective truths, these type of things do exist. Um, we are to be looking for them. Uh, we're not to just be making stuff up as we go and redefining things because this is bad. Uh, this uh, is going to cause problems in the culture. It's already causing major problems uh, in our political discourse, uh, in our culture today. So we're going to talk about how terms are important, terms and definitions, the use of them, uh, how these are being abused, uh, what are the current popular fads that are abusing them in our in our current uh, discourse and our current dialogues that, that we're having as human beings today. As we attempt to try and talk to each other, uh, we're having a real problem just trying to understand what we're even saying to each other. Talking past each other, having improper ideas of what terms and definitions mean and what they are. Um, uh, we're going to be talking about some various different terms that you hear floating around. Some of these things are semi-fascist, Christian nationalism, um, 
white supremacy. Uh, these are groups of people supposedly that are being lumped together and the purpose it seems in it is hate. Uh, that's the purpose that I always see in it. We're not putting people or human beings into these groups in order to be nice. Um, so that's a problem. So we're going to be talking about some of these things today and we'll probably go off into some different areas. That's just a little bit of a background on the podcast and what we do and how we do it here and the things that we discuss. Uh, so some introductory thoughts from Jay Scott. Well, first of all, welcome everyone back to Up Your Dialogue. Uh, us and them, self and other. Today we're going to get into terms and definitions, but... As data people, LA and I are familiar with the concept of moving targets. And today's definition might be, you know, tomorrow's boobery. And some of these definitions have come up, uh, some, of the, some of the terms that we'll talk about. But as a lead-in to what these terms and definitions might be, the topic that we were uh, very interested in for today is the idea of Christian nationalism. And... This seems to be a very popular buzzword or phrase all over social media. So we're going to figure out if this is actually a moving target uh, or if there's something about Christians and nationalism that goes together or what these might mean. Um, and so as, a, as listeners know or will become familiar with, L.A. is the Christian among us. And we do well on this uh, podcast to hear the world view from a representative, a person who is a believer in Christ and the Judeo-Christian tradition, and see what illumination can come from a lens of this view. I have been observing that Americans who identify themselves as Christians is perhaps lower than at any point in the history of the United States. And so if you took a look at uh, voters and groups and citizens 200 years ago or 100 years ago or 20 years ago, presumably you will find more Christians among that population than is the case today. And so is it a case where America was a Christian nation and is that's changing and they're no longer becoming Christian? Are we living in a world where uh, even a definition of what a nation is is in dispute? And so... People believed they were part of a nation 200 or 100 or 20 years ago, and that too is slipping away. Are these two terms identical? I appreciate the idea that the labels that are given in popular culture are meant to divide, and in this division are indeed sown the seeds of hatred for the other person. And it seems to me that this is neither the way of the Christian nor the nationalist as I'm familiar with those terms. So let's discuss them a little bit further, and we'll hear what L.A. has to say about Christians and nationalists. Yeah, the Christian nationalist discussion probably falls into uh, my category in order to kind of define our terms here, um, given that uh, I'm the theologian of the of side of the, <laughs> the theology side of the podcast. Um, the I wanted to start out with an article, though, uh, that just came out eight hours ago, um, because we want to be able to kind of relate this idea of what Christian nationalism has become in our current political discourse um, and then juxtapose that to what it, it really is. And then we can talk about, is this really something that we need to be worried about? Because all the articles that I'm reading it, um, 
from major media outlets are telling me that we need to be really worried about Christian nationalism. Um, so let's take a look at this um, article uh, from the Miami Herald that came out today. Um, and it's an article talking about Governor DeSantis. Um, and the title of the article is Miami Herald editorial says Governor DeSantis is flirting with Christian nationalism and warns of white supremacy link. So we've got two different terms here, actually. We have Christian nationalism, and now we're attempting to merge that in with white supremacy. So we've got two groups of definitions um, that we're trying to bring together for a purpose. Uh, so let's see what the article uh, reads. It's not a very long article. Uh, the Miami Herald published an editorial criticizing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis flirting with Christian nationalism, warning that it overlaps with white supremacy. DeSantis and other conservative leaders, such as Representative Lauren Boebert and Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, have recently touted Christian nationalist ideas, a political ideology that asserts an intrinsic connection between being American and being Christian. So a political ideology that asserts an intrinsic connection between being American and being Christian. Now, if you just stop there, I grew up thinking that there was just an intrinsic connection between being an American and being a Christian. And as far as I knew, as a child or a teenager or a 20-something or even a 30-something, there wasn't any problem with that, as far as I knew. You were an American and you were a Christian. The article continues. The influential daily newspaper, one of the most widely read in the state, points to DeSantis invoking of Christian war imagery, as he said in a recent speech, put on the full armor of God, stand firm against the left schemes. Uh, Republicans such as DeSantis have found a political gold mine by pitting Christians against the so-called evils of the left, such as LGBTQ people and woke teachers. But the newspaper's editorial board warns that Christian nationalism can have dangerous appeal beyond just religion. We cannot overlook, this is a quote, quote, we cannot overlook the overlap between Christian nationalism and its nostalgia for our Anglo-Protestant past and white supremacy. The editorial close quote. The editorial says, noting that many devout Christians enslaved black people centuries ago. The article also cites recent data laid out by Robert P. Jones, the head of the Public Religion Research Institute, which suggests that, quote, the more racist attitudes a person holds, the more likely he or she is to identify as a white Christian, close quote. Christian nationalism is also not just about religion, according to Ryan Burge, an Eastern Illinois uni University professor, who studies the intersection between religion and political behavior. We have all kinds of experts nowadays, folks. Lots of experts. We've seen like three experts just in like one half of this article. So Ryan Burge, an Eastern Illinois University professor who studies the intersection between... Who, who goes to college to study the intersection between religion and political behavior? I mean, he probably spent $100,000 on this degree. Probably has a lot of student loan debt. Uh, Burge told the paper that its appeal also related to nostalgia for the days when traditional values weren't questioned. When, quote, a woman was a woman and a man was a man, unquote. A popular gripe amongst conservatives. The paper suggests that DeSantis' embracing of Christian nationalism hints at him eyeing 2024 GOP presidential primary voters as Florida, which he won by a razor-thin margin in 2018, has long been considered a purple state. The paper also criticized Democrats for failing to come up with an effective counter-narrative to politicians like DeSantis that does not demonize religion or come across as proselytizing. Quote, if DeSantis is telling his followers to go fight to shape the nation to their religious liking, a counter-narrative should be that this rhetoric could not only incite violence, but it also undermines Christianity itself. 
Close quote. The governor's Christian nationalist shtick only separates us, the paper says, adding that Democrats should, quote, counter it more boldly and bring back into their tent voters who feel that on the issues of religion and faith, the party has nothing to say to them. Close quote. So I picked out this article because I thought it was a very interesting conflation of Christian nationalism, white supremacist, racist terminology that is being just kind of thrown around, conflated together to come up with this idea that we have to be really concerned about the fact that, as the article points out, there may be an intrinsic connection between being American and being Christian. And the reason that is, is because apparently being Christian, anyone who claims to be a Christian nowadays and either votes for Trump or has an American flag in the background of their video or, or has an American flag hanging on the front of their house as I do. So I am a Christian, someone who studies the Bible, studies theology, um, teaches, um, all of that. And I have an American flag that's hanging outside of my house. Apparently I'm a Christian nationalist because I've created an intrinsic connection between being American and being a Christian. So what we're doing now is if we're going to make this connection, instead of it just being, hey, I have a religious faith and I also serve my country, which I did in the Air Force for eight years. So what's exactly wrong with this connection? So that was my thought when the first time I heard about Christian nationalism, which I don't know, it was like five minutes ago, because um, I don't think this, maybe Jay Scott can correct us if we're wrong, him being the historian of the, of the podcast, but I don't really understand a deep historical uh, basis for this Christian nationalism idea, at least certainly not the way it's being touted in this article. Now, obviously, we have historic connection between a, a large history of Christianity and a smaller but also historicity of our nation, and those two things are connected. Judeo-Christian principles is something that the country was founded with. Not that, you know, we understand that the founding fathers were not Christians, uh, not all Christians. Some of them were, some of them were deists, some of them had different theological ideas, but most of them prayed. Uh, you know, most of them in their own writings talked about the need for uh, morality and of some sort, you know, uh, and that morality was based in religious thought. So nobody can really deny that it's there in black and white. So we have this intrinsic connection between being uh, between Christianity and being an American. It's just there. But this article wants to take that and turn it into a redefinition of what they want it to be now, which is something that's happening across the gamut in all of our political and cultural discourse. We want to. We've already had a podcast on critical race theory um, where we talked about how racism has been redefined. We've talked about the the white supremacist idea already on this podcast, and we've touched on it, about how that really is not what people are making it out to be. Um, and so this idea of Christian nationalists, um, the article, Republicans such as DeSantis have found a political goldmine by pitting Christians against so-called evils of the left, unquote, such as LGBTQ people and woke teachers. Now, there is no Christian that I know of that um, hates LGBTQ people. There's no idea of Christian nationalists that wants to um, exclude LGBTQ people. Um, and are, are we, when we're talking about wokeness, there's inherent problems with wokeness that we've talked about on the podcast. Um, so if you want to call these evils of the left, 
Christians don't see LGBTQ as an evil of the left. We see evil things that um, these these groups are doing as far as wokeness goes. Uh, and, uh, and certainly the lifestyle that is promoted in both wokeness and the LGBTQ community does not fall in line with Christianity. Um, so those are issues uh, that can be discussed and understood what those differences are. But pitting these groups to try and pit Christians against other groups of people is what the intention of this definitional or this redefining of Christian nationalism and, and what pops into your head when you think of a Christian nationalist um, is what the attempt is. Um, we cannot overlook the overlap between Christian nationalism and this nostalgia for our Anglo-Protestant past. What exactly is the problem with our Anglo-Protestant past? Well, they were racist and they had slaves. Okay, well, so did everybody else. And unless I have my history wrong, and I hope J. Scott can point it out to me if I do, the first nations to abolish slavery and to do away with things like white supremacy was Great Britain first, who actually sent out warships to try and stop the African trade, if I have my history correct, when they no longer wanted to um, put up with the slavery that was going on in the African continent. And the American Judeo-Christian tradition that clearly states that all men are created equal. And so the founding fathers knew that the idea that all men were created equal would not allow for slavery to continue. And of course, they kicked the can down the road. And we ended up dealing with that in the Civil War uh, because of mainly the idea that the South was inherently tied in its economy to, to slavery. Um, but they knew that at some point, because of the principles that are scripturally based, that white supremacy, these type things, racism, these type things would be rooted out. And eventually they were under a very bloody war that cost a lot of white people's lives. Um, and also in, in the Brits, uh, cost a lot of lives on the British side in order for white people to put down things like uh, racism, white supremacy. So this idea that Christianity or Christian nationalism somehow overlaps white supremacy is false. It's just straight up false. Uh, there's no truth to it. It's fiction. Um, uh, and then a couple of the other things that this article attempts to do uh, in regards to specifically to Ron DeSantis, who is the next person. After we put Trump in jail, then the next person we're going to have to do away with is Ron DeSantis because he's probably going to run in 2024. Um, he comes out with this Christian language of putting on the whole armor of God. <laughs> and all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, no. What are we going to do? A politician said the word God, and we can't have that in, a cult in, in our political discourse. Well, of course, that's silly. Uh, politicians all throughout the history of America have talked about God, have invoked God, and God we trust is on the money, for crying out loud. Um, the Sansa saying we should put on the whole armor of God is not something that anyone politically needs to be worried about. This does not mean that he's calling out Christians to put on armor and go to the to to have another January sixth. We've got everyone trumped up, no pun intended, over this January sixth idea of oh, there was some people there that had some Christian symbolism, so we want to infuse the idea that it's this Christian movement that wants to turn our government into a theocracy type thing. That's simply not the case. Um, Christians are not on the march to implement theocracy. Um, and this idea that Ron DeSantis talking about a Bible verse means that he wants to bring the Christian soldiers into the capital uh, to create riots and things 
or to even put that idea in the heads of people is just straight up propaganda. And it's, it's just, it's not, it's not there. It's not, it's not something that's a thing. Um, so Jay Scott, it's this, these type of articles that are coming out now, which causes me as the Christian to be worried about this direction that we're taking, um, the uh, separation of Christianity with uh, the American ideal, uh, this idea that we need to separate them because if we have a combination of these things, like we've had all down through our history of our country, that all of a sudden this is a real threat to our democracy and our government. Um, as a Christian, I find this um, propaganda, there's no truth in it, and it's, I think, dangerous the other way because of what this means in the future. If this type of propaganda continues to move forward, what it means for Christians in the future is um, a backlash against your everyday church-going Christian as half of the country is being told that we have to worry about these people. So that's my, of course, people could say, oh, well, he's a Christian. He's, uh, you know, a guy who's who uh, runs in Christian circles. So he has this idea of what, of what Christian nationalism. However, on this podcast, we don't just have Christians on the podcast. We have an agnostic. And it's always really interesting to me to get um, the opinion of someone who uh, is not a Christian on the idea of something like Christian nationalism so that, you know, because what the funny thing is that you're going to find out is that I think that the writers of this article and people that think like this might even throw our friend Jay Scott into the Christian nationalist group, even though he's not a Christian. And so I want to get his take on what he thinks about this Christian nationalism. I find the idea that someone will end up identifying me as a Christian in whatever newspaper article to be very charming. And so this is the fun part where I get to run a little interference on behalf of our co-host, L.A., who properly can be identified as a Christian. Well, that's him. That's not me. And so I don't have to defend Christianity from the point of view of a believer. Where I can run a little interference is to question the parsing out of the idea that the United States of America would be a nation were it not for Christians. And as a matter of record, if you go back to the founding of the country and you go back to the 18th century and you go back to the Declaration of Independence and the American Revolution, and you take a snapshot there of these rabble rousers protesting against an autocratic monarchy of the world's greatest empire of the day, this would be Great Britain. Great Britain was then a nation of Christians, as indeed almost all of Europe would have been in that day. And both the persons that the founders were carving, separately carving out a nation from and making, forging into a new nation, the previous iteration of nations were Christian. And indeed, it would be very difficult to argue that the founding fathers of the American Revolution were non-Christians, and by which I mean in particular anti-Christians. So you're not going to find in the papers of Washington and Adams and Jefferson and the others uh, much a talk about the evils of Christianity and how they have to be overcome and separated. To the contrary, the migration to the Americas was predominantly based on the notion of fleeing from religious persecution, including, in particular, various groups that had different interpretations of Christianity itself. 
So the idea of the founding of America was that you could come uh, to a land and worship as you saw fit, and no one else could tell you how that was mandated by a government to be. If you go to the American Revolution, you'll find that most of the citizens, most of the rebels, most of the people who fought in the American Revolution uh, and were leaders of the colonies that were part of the American Revolution were overwhelmingly Christian. And L.A. rightly breaks out a little bit of the concept of deism. So we have in our foundational document rights that are endowed by our creator. And it doesn't say rights that are endowed by Jesus Christ. It doesn't say rights that are endowed by Yahweh. It doesn't say that you have to pick up a Torah to get to the root of it. It says creator. And that's a broad term that is intended to be inclusive, right? So they're not telling you the specifics about the 10 things you have to believe about what the creator is. Otherwise, there'll be a Spanish Inquisition coming for you. That wasn't the point at all. The point was that it would be broad enough to be inclusive of just about everybody who came to the Americas. Now, who who would be non-Christians would be the native inhabitants before the colonists arrived with no knowledge of Christianity in particular and whose land this apparently was. Well, here the agnostic gets to pull the cool card out of his boot and say, what about this? If you look at the history of life on Earth from an evolutionary perspective or on the level of species, right, we all came from somewhere, from ancestors that came from somewhere, from ancestors who also, and I'll break this to you listeners, came from somewhere. Now, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants came from somewhere, but so did Native Americans who lived on this continent. They too came from somewhere. In great migrations from places that are not America, so Asia in particular, back when the Straits connecting Russia and Alaska, something, if I recall, Sarah Palin said she could see from her house. Well, in previous eras, you could walk from Russia to your house if that house was in Alaska, and people did. So is the founding of the nation related to that, a 30,000-year-old migration through sea, ice, land that doesn't exist anymore and is that the beginning of the founding of the nation is it millions of years before that when dinosaurs inhabited the world was it their nation was it before that in the evolutionary perspective when the entire globe was covered in water and creatures eventually evolved in ways to crawl out of it was it the first organic cells that found a way to survive by eating their neighboring cells and therefore having the energy to become multicellular. So if you take a look at Earth as a historical uh, event, it's been around for billions of years, um, and it wasn't always inhabited by white people or Protestants or natives or, or anybody else we've ever heard of, Africans. And so what is this idea of a nation? Well, we have founding documents that attest to what that means in the case of America. And in the case of the United States of America, these were predominantly, overwhelmingly believers in Christianity or a Judeo-Christian framework, even though they might not always say it, right? So you wouldn't be likely to find George Washington in a church every Sunday. Uh, that's not true. Uh, you might not be likely to find a number of the founding fathers absented from church on Sunday. It doesn't mean they didn't believe in Judeo-Christian 
theology, it means that they didn't believe it in the same way that others did. And that tends to be the case today, too. In other words, you have Catholics who are practicing and non-practicing. You have Protestants that don't agree with each other necessarily about interpretation, and so they form smaller and separate congregations. You have people who feel religious, uh, spiritual, but are not part of an organized structure of religion whatsoever. So the idea that America is becoming less Christian uh, is maybe different than the idea that America is becoming less religious, is maybe becoming different from the idea that because people are Christians, they are to be separated and otherized. Um, and so the division is inherent, but if, as a matter of historical record, separating Christianity from the founding of America isn't possible. Uh, that doesn't mean every single person that lived in the colonies was a Christian, but overwhelmingly they were. Um, and it's part of the tradition of the founding of the country. So there's no reason to suppose why someone like our co-host L.A. would grow up with an understanding that there's some connection between Christianity and nationalism in this country. But we shouldn't mistake that this was ever the nation of Christiania. This wasn't just a nation of Christianity. Christiania. It was a nation of tolerance. Of religious beliefs and as an agnostic we don't want to see intolerance between people whose spiritual beliefs should be respected and are part of the fabric of the tradition of the nation we come from so that's the christian and the nation part from the point of view of an agnostic now i don't know what these founding fathers and their communities would have done with someone like me in 1780 or 1680 because I, too, would not be inclined to attend a church every time and have a structure of the ten things I have to follow and so forth. I would have come here because I wanted tolerance to be left to my spiritual views privately and on my own. And so my hope is that, by and large, that was the plan. Uh, doesn't mean that, that it always happened, but that was the principle. You didn't come here because you had to uh, follow a certain strict guideline, and you didn't point the finger at the other group and say, you're not supposed to be here, you're not from here, you're not the right kind of Christian, or you're not the, not the right kind of Western person. It occurs to me, historically, L.A. correctly brought up that the, the great powers who rescinded and banished slavery in the 1830s and 40s, first and foremost, were England and France the two great Western powers, England being the first, Great Britain. And when they attempted to do this, uh, what they discovered, if indeed it was a new discovery, Africans had been enslaving one another in huge swaths of their population since there's ever been records of the population of the peoples of Africa. And they're, they're not unique either. Western people have done it. Asians have done it. I recall, as a matter of history, that the largest slave market in America before the Civil War, was in New Orleans, owned and operated by black people. That was the largest slave market in the history of America. And we're not going to point out and, and call out black people as the enslavers, even though some of them did. Rather, we're going to say that many lives, millions of lives, were lost, damaged, destroyed, broken in a civil war that was intended to stop this from being a universal practice in our, in our country which succeeded, and slavery, step one, became a non-legal practice in our country. doesn't mean we don't have to do more, that history would not progress in good ways since then. But the idea of this Florida newspaper 
that says a Christian nationalist party, Governor DeSantis's party, the Republican Party, has nothing to say to the other side is highly absurd. There is something to be said about being a nation to the other side. And one of the major topics coming up in this midterm election, in a month and a half, we are going to have elections post-Biden election of 2020. We're going to see uh, what the two sides have to say to each other now. And the hope is that there can be some kind of a dialogue, but to say, oh, the mere presence of a speaker that disagrees with you is unacceptable. The person can't even be present. If you're present for a discussion, is that racist? Is it homophobic because you're standing there? Is there really nothing to be said to the other side of, of the aisle when we've just had half of a century of Roe v. Wade overturned And one of the things it seems to me that one party has to say to the other, and we've discussed the topic on Up Your Dialogue before, is don't kill your babies. Now, if that's a political topic, then so be it. But you cannot rightly posit that one side isn't telling the other something. They're telling you something. You may not want to hear it, but it's very likely your future children would want to hear it. So those are some initial thoughts about Christian nationalism. This is a a kind of American bogey now, and they would have us try and seek out people who are Christian or people who believe in the nation of the United States as sinister and evil groups that are racist, xenophobic, homophobic, culturally backward, anti-women, anti-progress. They'll seek to divide in a hundred and a thousand different ways. And until, I think, there's something un-American about being American. In that case, you have a problem with terms and definitions. If there's something very American about being un-American, then you have a problem with your term and definition. If you have a notion that an anti-racist and a racist both have a racist agenda, if the racist and the anti-racist are both racist, then you have a problem with terms and definitions. And so we have a problem with terms and definitions. And I'll uh, I'll put it that way. Is it, a, is it American to say that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? So is that grouping of words that we find in the Declaration of Independence, is that American or is that Christian? Or if I say that now, if I say that there's a creator that gives me my rights, um, did I just make a Christian statement or an American statement? Well, I made an American statement because it's in the document and I made a Christian statement because it's in the Bible. Now, you can be a deist, you can have a different theology, you can be an agnostic, you can be an atheist, you can be a Presbyterian or Baptist or whatever it is that you want to be, but you live in a country that says that you get your rights from a creator and that all men are created equal. Now, you can try and make the case that we could have a a government or a nation um, that doesn't have this in the document, and then we can still function underneath the idea that men are created equal. Um, You don't have an objective basis for why all men are created equal or why you should treat men equally as other men. But it's the idea that's found in the Bible that men are created equal. And so that is a Christian Judeo-Christian fundamental idea that's in the document of the country. So an intrinsic connection between what Christians believe and what is American is there, regardless if you want to call yourself deist, monotheist, agnostic, 
atheist, whatever. So the issue that I have mainly is with this definition of this definition that we have now of Christian nationalism is, oh, okay, so you are a pro-life person. So you don't think that we should be killing babies in the womb. So now where are you getting that from? Oh, well, you know, I'm getting that from the idea that life's at conception. You could get that from biology, from science. You can also get that from the Bible. But if I want to go and create legislation that says you can't kill your babies in the womb, oh, all of a sudden you're a Christian nationalist because you're trying to inflict your Christian way of thinking on me. Um, this is the problem with the way this is being used now because anytime you want to inflict any kind of morality that is something that you can get from Christianity, then somehow that is opposed to the idea of a nation. But that's never been the case in the entire history of America. And so if you want to have a country that doesn't um, see rights as coming from a creator, or where we don't have absolute truths that are just self-evident, um, then you can tell me what that country is. You can tell me what that country looks like, and we can have a discussion over whether or not we want to strip the Judeo-Christian ideas out of the documents and have a completely secularized country, which it seems to me uh, what the eventual end result that the left wants. They want to have a country that is void of these Judeo-Christian principles, primarily because they have tied them to these evil groups of white supremacists and racists um, and semi-fascists. Uh, groups that they've come up with that they want to tie to the country, to the historic founding of the country, like the 1619 Project, these different ideas that the country is evil, racist, and flawed. And they want to tie that into the country's Judeo-Christian principles and then lump everybody into this category so we can hate them. This is where the idea of Christian nationalists goes. Now, if you just wanted to say that Christian nationalism was, if, if, if I'm Marjorie Taylor Greene and I say I'm a Christian nationalist, and you, you ask me, well, Miss Green, what do you mean by that? And I tell you, well, I just want to see more Judeo-Christian values brought back into um, the culture and politics. That would mean that you want to ensure that pro-life principles are put into legislation. Um, that would mean that you want to uh, possibly say that marriage is between a man and a woman, um, you know, these different ideas. These are not harmful ideas in and of themselves. Now, you may not agree with those ideas. You may say, look, I'm in the LGBTQ community, and I think that marriage should be between men and men and women and women, um, and take that wherever you want to take it. I may disagree on that. But this isn't a reason where I need to be afraid of you or you need to be afraid of me or we need to worry about democracy uh, coming apart at the seams simply because I want to ensure a culture that sees men as men and women as women. Uh, regardless, if I get that from Judeo-Christian principles, or if I'm an agnostic and I get that from biology and science, or I just want to live, maybe I'm an agnostic, maybe I'm like Jay Scott, and look, I just want to live in a community where men are men and women are women and we don't kill our babies. That's it. That's just what I want to do. I'm not even basing it on Judeo-Christian principles, but I live in a country that allows me to you know, live the way I want to live. And so that's how I want to live. Do we need to be afraid of Scott because of uh, Jay Scott because of this? Uh, do we need to be afraid of uh, myself? Because I do get that from uh, scripture, from Judeo-Christian principles. That's how I understand things. I think that also lines up with science and biology. And because of that, 
I would support legislation where those things were infused uh, into policy. Now, that does not mean that I want everyone to worship in a Christian church. Uh, that does not mean that I want to force theonomy on the entire country. That does not mean that I'm going to riot at the state capitol. That does not mean that I'm going to tell Jay Scott that he needs to, uh, you know, become convert to Christianity or he needs to be banished from the country. These are not things that Christians are attempting to impose on anyone. Um, now, you have issues with people, um, some of which I've heard of, that where they say um, Trump is going to bring back uh, a Christian America. Now, that's not correct. Um, when I was deciding whether or not to vote for Donald Trump as a Christian, I was not deciding that whether or not uh, Donald Trump is going to bring uh, Judeo-Christian principles back to the country and turn America into a Christian nation again. Um, as J. Scott pointed out, America, the United States, was never a Christian nation in the sense that Christianity was the state church that everyone needed to worship in, that like you find um, in, in an Islamic nation, um, you know, where Sharia law is in place or anything like that. It never was that. It never wanted to be that. It said, look, you come here and you can worship how you feel you want to worship, uh, or you cannot worship if you choose not to worship. Uh, we are not going to impose a state form of worship. Uh, we learned our lesson in the 15th, 16th centuries and prior to that, when sacralism was an issue and uh, the politics or the state and the church you had a true combination of church and state where you had a state-sponsored religion that has never been the goal of America, that is not what Christians want to do in America, and that is not what Christian nationalism should be defined as because that is not happening. That's not anyone's goal to turn America into a theocratic state where Christianity is where everyone has to worship at the altar of Christianity, everyone has to believe in Jesus Christ as their savior, or you're going to be thrust out of the political scene, or you're going to be condemned and banished or executed or anything like that. That's not on the table. So you don't have to be worried about that. You don't have to be concerned about that because that's not happening. If anyone tries to tell you that's happening, they're lying to you or they're involved in some propaganda because they want to get your vote. The only thing that people that ascribe to Christianity and get involved in politics, the only thing that they're trying to do right now is because of the massive overstep of the left, because they've gone off the cliff and off the cliff in their radicalization. And they've decided to tell us all that men are women and women are men and that abortion should be allowed in, in every trimester and all the way through and that it's reproductive rights for women and, and all the transgender stuff and all of these things, all of this stuff that's just come out of in the last five minutes. And you have the backlash against that where those that hold to Judeo-Christian principles are saying, wait a minute, put on the brakes. We don't want this. Up until five minutes ago, this wasn't a thing. You've gone way too far. And now we want to bring we want to bring into back into the culture and into the political realm basic Judeo-Christian principles of men and women, rights that are deemed by a creator, uh, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, um, common sense laws that are based in morality, these type things. If someone wants those things, they are not Christian nationalists. And so we need to stop putting them into this group that allows us to hate them or allows a certain part of the country to be afraid of who these people are because they're going to inflict some sort of Christian martial law on the nation. This is just myth. It's not happening. 
It's like white supremacy. The, this article tried to take national white, uh, Christian nationalism, conflate it over with white supremacy, which also from a nation, from a national standpoint, from the standpoint of our laws, doesn't exist. Okay, I'm not saying that there aren't white supremacists in the country. There are. I'm not saying there aren't people who have some theocracy in mind. I'm sure there are. There are people that think they're fairies and vampires. There are people that think that the earth is flat. I mean, like Jay Scott and I have talked about, this is a human condition issue. This is not a Christian issue. It's a it's a human being problem that you have these different flawed ideas. But the idea that white supremacy is going to be pushed into laws again, like we're going to bring back Jim Crow laws? No, no, we're not. Nobody's attempting that. Um, the idea that all minorities and women too have no laws against subjecting them or oppressing them is a fact. And nobody's looking to put those laws back in place. Doesn't mean there's not a racist in the country. Doesn't mean a white supremacist isn't over there somewhere. <laughs> but it, it means that uh, Christian nationalism and white supremacists, these aren't movements that you need to be worried about because they're looking to impact government and uh, institute theocratic laws into the nation. Um, so if you're a listener and you believe that, please don't. <laughs> there's no reason why you need to hate your Christian neighbor because you think he's a white supremacist based on when you read something from the Miami Herald. If you're a Floridian and you read this article today in the Miami Herald, it's propaganda nonsense and there's no truth. In it. I wonder if another way of, of approaching terms and definitions of Christian nationalism would be by having a look at what Christian nationalism doesn't mean. In other words, defining something based on what it is not. And so that makes me wonder, what is the opposite of Christian nationalism? So we could approach it like that and say, well, what is the opposite of a Christian? Is it a Jew or a Muslim? Well, those all have the root of the same Western God, so probably not them. Is it a Buddhist? A totally different uh, worldview, but is that really the anti-Christian, the exact opposite of a Christian? I think not, because it's it's not antithetical. In other words, a direct opposition. What would be the direct opposition of a Christian would be somebody who is in their anti-Christianity. Maybe that's more a kindred to something like an atheist, a person who is sure that there is no Christian God, or maybe a Satanist, a person who says the exact opposite thing of a Christian is a demonic hell entity, probably something more like an atheist, where they say it's impossible that there is a God or a Jesus Christ of divine capabilities. Uh, and would it be the opposite of being a nationalist? Well, an anti-nationalist, so somebody who doesn't believe in nations. So does that mean a globalist, uh, a, a, a world government where there aren't any parsing out of nations? Or is it a, an anarchist, a person that doesn't believe there should be any structure whatsoever, including such a, a thing as a nation? So if we try to approach what a Christian nationalist is from its opposite, does that mean something like a satanic, communist, globalist world? Or do we all go back in our caves and, and, and come out and only to throw hatred and uh, you know kill the other guy because he's not part of, is it a nation of one? Is the... J. Scott, the nation of J. Scott, and everything else is not that, so they have to be persecuted? Or do we, is it okay to live in a world where every single person is J. Scott, and therefore there's no conflict of any kind because we're the, we're the world of J. Scott? What do you say about this, L.A.? What is the, what, how can we make any headway based on what, what, a, what a, a Christian nationalist would not be? 
Um, well, I think it. I think we could also think about um, if not if we no longer want to have the um, the underpinnings, the Judeo-Christian underpinnings of a nation that we clearly have. Um, then what is it that what is it that we want? So, in other words, not so much of what is the opposite necessarily of Christian nationalists, like a like a Satan satanic globalist. Um, but what what is it that the left who is really the side that's coming out against that what they term as a Christian nationalist, um, or even uh, I see uh, liberal uh, liberal Christians that are trying to segment themselves away from what politically they see as a Christian nationalist. Um, so I think a better question is, what do these people want to replace this with? Um, I saw another article a little bit along the lines. Of, of, of what we're saying here. Um, the, the, the second half of the article said, despite its limitations, Judeo-Christian, quote unquote, Judeo-Christian, did good work for more than half a century, moving us beyond a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant America. It was most certainly better to be a Catholic or a Jew in 1990s America than in 1930s America. Indeed, one measure of America's progress is that over the last century, the term's usage has shifted from being an invitation by the left to embrace a more plural pluralistic future to a cry from the right to preserve a monoculture past, monocultural past. Despite the loud, angry voices most visible in the media, data from a recent PRRI survey demonstrate that most Americans embrace differences. Fully seven in 10 Americans say they are proud to live in a religiously diverse nation. Across our history, through the efforts of patriots in every generation, the United States has repeatedly found our way back from anti-democratic ways of white Christian nationalism. When we have succeeded, it's because we have clung to our best virtues rather than our worst instincts, our democratic principles rather than our tribal fears. It's time to say goodbye to Judeo-Christian America, but we can learn from its example, especially the way it creatively expanded our civic and moral imagination as we write the next chapter in the great history of American religious diversity. So I thought this article was interesting because I think it's trying to pontificate on what might be the next step and what we have assumed we've moved past this Judeo-Christian underpinnings of a nation into this multicultural religious ex uh, acceptance. Um, but it doesn't seem to me that we're being very accepting of anyone who wants to um, solidify our Christian underpinnings as far as our Judeo-Christian principles. Um, if someone says, look, I don't wanna move past where we were. I want to go back to where we were. Um, and that is seen as regressive instead of progressive. What does that look like? Well, for the Christian, when I hear Christians speaking against Christian nationalism, which they do, what they're really saying is we want to leave behind everything that we don't really like about Christianity, but we want to keep some of the things that we learned over time are, are good about Christianity. So for example, um, we don't like the fact that the Bible talks against homosexuality, so we'll cut that out. We don't like the fact that the Bible talks about or, or Judeo-Christian principles are involved in the differences between male and female, so we'll throw that out. But we like the fact that we read in the Bible that Jesus said to take care of the poor or um, love your neighbor. And nobody has a problem with love your neighbor. Uh, it's a biblical principle, love your neighbor. Oh, but we don't need the Bible to understand that. Well, maybe you don't, but it's a biblical principle. But we're okay with that one, so we'll keep that one too. 
And so we'll, we'll just kind of piece together the things that we like and we'll throw out all the stuff that we don't like. Then, like we read in this article, maybe at that point, uh, we can move past the things that we have deemed are bad about Christianity that we don't want to any longer have in our nation. And, but we'll keep all the good stuff. And so that's not the opposite of Christian nationalism, but it's something that I think people in their minds, they think that if we can, if we can just get away from these things that are holding our pro progressive ideologies back, that we could have this utopian nation where um, we're not held back by these Judeo-Christian beliefs that uh, we don't think mo the majority of Americans believe anyway. Uh, so I think that's where they're trying to go with it. Um, but they're doing it in a way that is trying to uh, make some Americans be fearful of other Americans and, and their approach to this. This is why I'm saying that when someone comes along and says, know what, I don't like the idea of moving past, quote, Judeo-Christian, unquote, because either I am a Christian or I like uh, where the country was in the 1980s or where the country was in the 1950s. I don't like the idea that we had Jim Crow laws in a part of our nation, but then the Bible doesn't speak to uh, wanting Jim Crow laws. Oh, well, some human beings use the Bible to support racism, and that's true, but it doesn't mean that Christian values support racism because a person used it to support racism. That doesn't follow. So I think what the problem uh, inherently is when we say we don't want Judeo-Christian values, then that means that the documents have to change, the country has to wholesale change the way Obama said he wanted to do it. Um, and then what does that country look like? And do we as a nation really want the end result of a country that no longer is guided by those Judeo-Christian principles that the left obviously detests. And so what would that look like is what I would like to know. So instead of thinking about the opposite of Christian nationalism, um, let's think about what a country would look like where there is no male and female, um, there are no rights for the unborn, um, everybody can just pursue whatever kind of sexually deviant behavior they wish um, in front of children, and we can teach all this to children in our classrooms. Um, we don't have rights that are given to us by a creator any longer. Those rights are decided on by human beings with no outside of authority uh, that we all recognize as self-evident. Um, morality is completely subjective. Uh, what's good for you may not be good for me, and so you can't impose any type of thing on me because truth is merely subjective. How do we design a country around this type of thinking because this seems to be, in my view, where we go, or at least it seems to be where those who are against, quote, Christian nationalism, unquote, want to go. Those are the policies that they put forward. So in that case, what does that nation look like? And do you, Jay Scott, as an agnostic, want to live in a post-Christian, or I don't want to say anti-Christian necessarily, but a, a nation that does not have as... The article said this no longer has interconnection with Judeo-Christian principles. Do you as an agnostic want to live in that kind of a country as opposed to the country that you grew up in? It sounds to me like the authors of the article and much of the left are saying that it's time to turn the page on a new chapter. And that makes uh, someone like L.A. the dinosaur do these Judeo-Christian values. Yeah, we'll keep a few of them. We'll let go of some more. Uh, we won't take uh, any kind of 
biblical reference unless we choose to parse out and pick out, or maybe, who knows, maybe they'll add to it other other uh, requirements. The This isn't the first time I've heard what a future or what progress should look like. And one of the branches of history that I've studied more than others is the history of communism. And according to Marxist theory, any kind of bourgeois or capitalist nation, the future of that capitalist nation is to be a world, and not merely a nation, but a world controlled by the proletariat. So we're using bourgeoisie and proletariat in the terminology of their day. The idea was that a nation itself is passe. There's a new chapter where workers of the world unite because they have nothing to lose but their chains. That doesn't mean they have a president or a king or anything else. What we have in common as inhabitants of the world is the commonality that we should own the means of production. And so I will have a hundred things in common with my fellow worker anywhere in the world and none in common with the people around me unless they are part of the workers of the world. And this was to lead, according to the theory, to a progress, a future, of what was called the withering of the state. So after the workers of the world have united and lost their chains and controlled the means of production and capitalism, Christianity specifically mentioned in Marxist doctrine, uh, all that is out the window and some withering of the state will occur. What, what was meant by that was interpreted differently by different guardians of the communist ideology thereafter. So the withering of the state away, where there don't need to be any more rules, doesn't need to be any more ownership, that doesn't need to be any more trading and markets, because maybe something like a mystical fairy dust will descend upon all the inhabitants of the earth, and they won't need to make anything, buy anything, sell anything, or do anything, because they'll just be. And therefore, whence the need for nations, you wouldn't need that if you, everyone was just be, and you didn't have any material wants or problems, and fairy dust had been spread throughout the planet. The idea of a nation's out the window, and the idea of a Christian is certainly out the window. For Karl Marx, the idea of a Christian is an opiate of the masses, that's what he called it, a need to induce a drug stupor among the populace in order to control and enslave them in the most effective way. And when you tossed out Christianity, you would lose that, that method of control and there would be no need for it in Fairy Dust Island. And so this isn't my first rodeo historically with the idea of turning the page and don't worry about Christianity or nationalism anymore. It's passe. I find such views are more common among powerful lands that have become decadent. And this is one of the great demises of any strong nation, is that to become so successful that their descendants aren't used to the rigor and hardship that was required to get there. And if those descendants have part of a clue, but their next generation descendants will have no idea. And if you continue down that process in a successful, great power, nation, land, people way, eventually they become soft. They become entitled. They become fatuous. And they have no need for the traditions that cause them to, to that cause their ancestors to eke out and forge something amazing because instead they're filled with instant gratification, unlimited resources, lack of work ethic. To be honest, 
They have trouble distinguishing among themselves which is a male and which is a female. This isn't the first country or people that this has ever happened to, but it strikes us because folks like L.A. and I live in a world and a, a nation and a land where this is happening in front of our very eyes. So it's one thing to go back to a biblical source and find out passages in the Old Testament that are not in favor of homosexuality. Right? I don't think it went well for places like Sodom and Gomorrah, and I'll let L.A. delineate the particulars of that. But these weren't exactly wonderful places doing right things according to tradition. And so in books like Leviticus and elsewhere, you go and have treatments of the topic that are not accepting of homosexuality. Well, even among more tolerant peoples that say, okay, we'll, we'll account for homosexuality among our population. But notice that L.A. adds to this, and other deviant behaviors, right? You could you can hear the traditional Christian language in the statement of L.A. And I think if you go on to a place like Twitter, where Up Your Dialogue has an account, and talk about the sexual deviance of the other members of the population who are part of LGBTQIA plus plus community, we might get banned off the platform. And a more succinct way of saying that might be to borrow from a popular buzzword of the last five minutes. And there's a reason why conservatives in America question the teaching community in our public schools and the wokeism that is now part of the fabric of the culture. And this for sure will get people banned off of a liberal platform like Twitter. And we call it the word groomers. And this isn't just your standard deviant behavior. Groomers are authority figures that go into the classroom of children, including very young children, with books like Touch Me, Touch You, or curricula that says, let's go to the drag show and all watch men parading around runways with dresses and heels, and let's cheer and grab onto it. It's not a stripper pole. It's a, a fun uh, stick in the ground in which noble people and awesome folks dance around when really, whether you are a Christian or any other decent thinking person, and I maintain that there can be decent thinking people that are not Christians, nobody wants a groomer in their classroom messing around with their six-year-old. Nobody wants that. And if they do, it's not a Christian nationalist problem. It's a problem far transcending what makes America a nation. It makes America a place of grooming of pedophiles and people who, if they're unclear about what makes a male and, or a female, they're going to have reproductive mutilation procedures. And I don't even know how we're supposed to account for that. Can I, as a good neighbor in conscience, say, oh, well, your 10-year-old's feeling, you know, uncomfortable about being a 10-year-old and they're going to become, you know, reproductively mutilated and have their body parts chopped off or hormonal injections and to make sure that they're there's no way of distinguishing in their mind between a male and female anymore because along with some fairy dust and your local tax paid for groomer, they're over that kind of thing. Am I supposed to look at my neighbor in good conscience and say, well, you know, it's your daughter, so you got to do what you got to do if they're confused. You may as well carve out any reproductive chance they have and, you know, a little mutilation here and there, some glitter, and I'm sure the groomer at school will take care of the rest. Have a nice day. It seems that I've done something a little bit unconscionable by not looking over the fence at my neighbor and saying, well, now, wait a minute, 
that seems kind of fishy to me. And I'm not a Christian by self-identification, and I'm still telling you it's a bit fishy. And it's not only fishy, but L.A. Is, has been kind also in a Christian sense to not point the finger at the other guy and say that's evil. Whereas I don't have such a constraint. I say if you're a groomer in a school messing around with children, I'm okay with that label as evil and I don't like it and I don't want it and it needs to be stopped. Um, I don't have any problems with calling groomers evil. I think it's the uh, it's the Christian actually that has the, uh, the worldview of good and evil. Um, I'm not sure how atheists um, determine objectively what's good and evil other than to say, you know, obviously uh, one person can think that someone who preys on young children is um, is evil. Another person uh, might just call them uh, what's the uh, politically correct term nowadays for uh, for an adult male that um, has uh, affections, should we say, for a child. Um, there's some politically correct term. I can't think of it now. We don't call them pedophile. Well, you can call them a pedophile, but the, um, ah, I can't think of it. But anyway, there's another term that we don't say pedophile. We, we call them XYZ, which is a nice way of saying that an adult has an affection for a child in a, in a sexual way. And we have to be um, understanding of this. Well, in uh, what we've established here is that we have an agnostic view that sees that as evil. And we have a Christian worldview that sees that as evil. And so you can't say that if I want to prevent this, that, you know, I'm engaging in some sort of Christian nationalism. Uh, because we have an agnostic on the podcast, I would like to prevent this type of behavior who's not a Christian. Um, so it's when someone says, you know, I want to continue with hundreds of years of precedent, um, morality, principles uh, of something as basic as male and female, that does not make them a Christian nationalist. That makes them someone who just wants to continue with the moral fiber of the country that has been in place for centuries um, instead of aligning with the people who just came along five minutes ago and decided that they wanted to change this and now looks at me or Jay Scott as the weirdos who don't cooperate with their line of thinking. So we have to create terminology for them whether it's semi-fascist or Christian nationalist or whatever the case may be, um, we have to come up with these groups so that we can put you in a group so that we can have a legitimate right to hate you. And if we hate you, then we can cancel you. If we can see you as some kind of threat to democracy, then we can remove you from the public square. Um, this gives us the right to do this because we have decided as human beings that uh, these are the social rules that you have to follow. And if you don't follow them, then you're banished. Now, I don't see how that's any better than the alternative of that uh, that Christians are being accused of is saying, well, if you don't believe in male and female, then I disagree with you. Um, if you say that if I don't get on board with transgenderism, for example, that I'm a Christian nationalist or I'm some kind of fascist, that just doesn't follow. The, 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 and I, the transgenderism issue is, is something that is not the norm. It's, it, it's not something that has been the norm. And what the left is doing is bringing all these things out that haven't been the norm for all of American history. And then when there's a backlash to saying, hey, wait a minute, put on the brakes, we want to go back to what the norm was, then you're the crazy person, you're the Christian nationalist that wants to impose theocracy on America. And this is what is 
not allowing us to be able to have a conversation about where we really need to go as a country or as a nation, because we still live in one of those, even though we want to open the borders up and destroy the nation, but we still live in a nation today. And we have to go forward as a nation, as a people who can at least agree on the basic fundamentals of what that nation is. If we can't, we don't have a nation because we if we can't agree on the basic fundamentals of what holds that nation together, we don't have a nation. So what the fight really is about, we want to get down to what this really is about. It's about, are we going to go back to what has been the norm, which the left sees as evil, as destructive, that needs to be torn down and a new norm needs to be put in place? Or are we going to uh, continue forward with these new norms that are against the old Judeo-Christian principle, principled norms that we have known, uh, at least in, for Jay Scott and I, m the majority of our adult lives. Um, what I think is silly is when someone wants to go against a norm and then you have a person that says, wait a minute, that's not normal. And then all of a sudden, that's the person that all of a sudden needs to defend themselves. It should be the other way around. If you're going to try and implement something on a culture that is non-normative, then it should be on you to uh, get everybody else on board with your norm, with your new norm. Um, and the approach to that should not be creating a new defined group, and then shoving everyone in that group and then telling everybody to hate that group of people, which is currently what's happened. Um, so the Christian nationalism thing, I think, is um, I understand why people um, are talking about it, given the fact that we did have January 6th and we did have some Christians that showed up at that thing. Um, and um, we do have uh, people who wish to not have a new norm, a new set of norms. Um, but the way this is being characterized when we're talking about, you know, terms and definitions, it's not, it's, it's misinformation. Uh, that's something that we hear about a lot. Uh, uh, people on the right are accused all the time of misinformation or disinformation. Um, and it's basically any time that you don't agree or that you don't um, uphold these new norms that are being implemented, these new definitions, uh, these new terms, then you're the one who's providing this misinformation when actually the opposite is true. Uh, the truth is that someone who is redefining terms such as nationalism and Christian and then and then turning it into something that it's not and then labeling you with that term and then telling everybody to hate you because you're this new term, then that is the inappropriate approach. That is not um, how a nation or a culture communicates and is able to get along with one with one another, is able to have a country together, is able to be productive, um, even able to be in the same circles uh, and getting along with one another. Um, so regardless if you're a Christian or not, if you're listening to this podcast, um, the important thing is that we have to stop creating our own terms and definitions of things and thinking that that's okay. Because as we've demonstrated, not only is it not okay, but that's actually what is dangerous. Someone who believes in Judeo-Christian principles is not dangerous, but someone who redefines a term and then labels you with that term and thinks that they can just willy-nilly change this stuff up um, is why we have the ideas of um, absolutes outside of ourselves. Uh, and this is where Christianity puts forward the idea that we can't just make stuff up uh, because there is object 
objectivity outside of the human condition. Um, and we have absolute ideas of things like morality. We have self-evident truths. Uh, we don't believe that human beings give rights to other human beings. Uh, we believe that those rights come from outside of ourselves. And the reason that that's so important, uh, I should say we see one of the reasons why that's so important, because as we just make up our definitions of things and decide to that they are whatever we say they are, then we can put labels on people um, and and hate those people for those labels um, with no basis for it other than we have a political agenda or we just don't like the same things that you like. So for example, I could get kind of silly with it. And so Jay Scott is agnostic. Let's say he has an idea um, that I don't particularly like because I have a Christian worldview. Um, and so he says, hey, I think we should do this. So normally I would just say, well, you know what? I don't agree with that because I have a different worldview. So let's talk about how the two of us can get along and how the two of us could still live in the same space uh, and have a local government uh, and be able to do commerce um, and be able to, you live your life and I live my life and this whole idea of freedom, that's the way things used to be. Um, but instead what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna create a label out of the thin air um, that used to mean something else. I'm gonna call it this now. So it used to be X. Now I'm gonna call it X2 and I'm gonna throw J. Scott in the X2 group and tell everybody to hate J. Scott because he's a threat to democracy. So that's where we are. And it's not the, it's not the Christian's fault that we're there. It's the folks on the left that want to demonize everyone who doesn't want to move forward in this progressive idea that they have. So they've created these groups that aren't really definitional, uh, that they can't really explain to you outside of the fact that, well, we just don't like these people. So we're going to put them in this group and hate them. And you should hate them too, because if you don't hate them, then our ideology isn't going to be pushed forward. And, you know, we're going to have to live under these horrible totalitarian uh, dictator Christian people. So threats of democracy, you need to hate these people. That's not where we need to go, regardless if you're an agnostic, a Christian, atheist, whatever. Because that means, in my view, basically the death of any nation, not just Christian. I wonder, we've been discussing Christian nationalism. L.A. brought up the term fascist. And now the latest cultural rage is who is the semi-fascist, when I guess you would first have to figure out what the regular fascist was or the full fascist. And other terms and definitions of today, one of them we discussed in the pre-recording was recession. What does that mean? Is used to mean, as a pragmatic rule of thumb, two quarters of negative GDP growth in a row. Uh, but that somehow changed and the goalposts got moved and say, well, it's complicated. Uh, maybe that's not enough. And so as we as we embark upon quarter three, possibly in a row, and quarter four and five and six, whatever it may be, at what point will, is that a recession or is that definition out the window? Or uh, this new notion mm, propounded by Ibram X. Kendi that a non-racist means racist. You have to be an anti-racist, an advocate or an activist. You can't be non-racist. It's just another form of racism if you're non-racist. So when you have A and negative A meaning the same thing, somebody switch a route on the terms and definitions. Mathematically, if you say one and negative one are the same number, if you try and balance your books like that or get through life like that, you're going to have a reality check. Uh, and it's not only those terms. Now, Christian nationalist isn't 
what it Christian doesn't mean what it used to, and a nationalist doesn't mean what it used to. A fascist is up in the air, uh, and they throw in these labels, labels intended to divide, but it takes a while for one to even recognize that they've been labeled, right? So it isn't enough to be heterosexual anymore. Now you, the term apparently intended for something like it is cisgender. So now all the terms are getting and definitions are getting switched around because the important thing is your understanding and approach of transgender, legitimizing what in the old days might have been a member of a drag show or perhaps a hermaphrodite or some other minor and anecdotal tiny speck on the grains of sand of a beach is now meant to be put on equal terms so that if you are a male and furthermore you have to I personally identify as a male versus something else and then you have an attraction toward the female of your species all that stuff when you roll it up together means you're cisgender uh and likewise you know if you are a woman who doesn't believe in transgenderism you're a turf jk rowling a famous example of a turf trans exclusionary radical feminist so you can't just think that dressing up in drag or being a hermaphrodite is the exception. You have to be aware of all the terminologies and you've become exclusionary, which means you need to be canceled. A wide variety of terms and definitions have emerged from the culture very quickly to LA's point that it it happens in the last five minutes. Well, we live in an information age now where the public square isn't what it used to be. In traditional sense, you bring your idea to the public square, you have an attempt at equal time and debate of the various parties, and then these people can be persuaded or take a vote or go home and think about it and then come back and reconvene. And now the public square isn't really public in a fair sense or square in the sense that there's a marketplace or or some town hall where you can go to. This stuff is all social media information age and online. So it's not always clear if the public debate, the public square is being driven by parties that are not really uh, engaged in, in, you know, fair play. In other words, when you're debating somebody about transgenderism, if you are, are you debating an algorithm based on non-American bots? Uh, therefore gaining clicks and then somebody else is using that and the people you think you're talking to aren't really people nor are you really talking to them you might be talking or engaging otherwise in unknown ways with an artificial algorithm produced by an ai that has nothing to do with the 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 idea of the person you think you're talking to um we have a notion of what is a free and fair election that has occurred in 2020 and the january 6th insurrectionists are obviously a group of people some of them were thought the election was stolen or rigged and the notion that that's true is one matter i personally accepted the results of the november 2020 election because there's no way around it if you don't accept the results of the election then you you are obliged to contest the of the election. And I wasn't, and I think a vast majority of Americans were not, ready to come to the table and say, we disregard this election, this didn't happen, and get off my lawn, or get out of my state, or get out of my secession state, 
but we call it an insurrection when really others might call it the the basically the 2020 version of riot number 548 in a American city. This for many people is the end result example of a riot by some extreme folks on the right who may be reacting to the first 547 riots of extreme people on the left who by and large got away with it. And so what is a free and fair election? Well, is it a case where we all mail in our ballots? And how do we be sure everyone who mailed in their ballot was a registered voter? And how did that registration process work? And again, years later, I'm not saying that the result of the 2020 election should be overturned, because that's an extreme extreme point of view, and could be a violent point of view. But on the other hand, it seems to me to be an injustice to say this is the model of what a free and fair election looks like. You have Zuckerbucks boxes everywhere, people mailing in ballots, whether that was permitted or prohibited by their state legislature or executives or courts, and it was a mess. That's not the model of a free and fair election. Or when you hear a leader say that the borders are under control and we have a safe and secure border. Well, what does that mean? Because if your term and definition of a safe and secure border means traditionally it's secure, in other words, people don't pass freely between one side and the other, unchecked in any way, then that's different than 2022 or during the past year where we've had something like 2 million encounters at the border. 2 million encounters. Some of them were returned to Mexico. Others were catch and release. Others you kind of see on an infrared camera and let it go. Uh, And is that really what is a safe and secure border? Well, you have millions of people passing through and you don't know who they are or why they're here. And presumably some of them are here to make a better life and participate in a great democratic future. Although they seem to be coming to a Christian nation that the left doesn't want to be Christian or a nation. So whatever that means, everything's kind of up in the air in the terms you thought you knew, be it a recession or a a free and fair election or a secure border, that doesn't mean what we thought it was. So when the other person is using the term of a secure border, for example, what do they really mean by that? They know it's not secure. They denigrated, crucified, to borrow a, a Christian term, they denigrated and crucified the existing president, the current president, Donald Trump, for claiming that he and putting funds to build a wall to guard the border. But that, that wasn't a secure border. That was a great injustice of a Holocaust proportions. And I think people don't even know what a Holocaust is anymore either. The persons that were in the Holocaust in the 1930s and 40s in Nazi Germany are mainly dead. So we don't even have their voices by and large live telling you this is what a Holocaust looks like. And putting a guard and a a wall at your border to prevent millions of people passing through isn't what the Holocaust looked like. And even fascism, a nebulous term, it's not clear to me if people even know what that means. Is a fascist a nationalist? In other words, there's a a, a conflation that goes on there. Can you be a, a fascist who's not a nationalist? Probably not. But can you be a nationalist who's not a fascist? Very likely, yes. So if you take a look at one of the platforms of the Nazi party in Germany, if that's what they're going with, one of the major platforms was Germany for Germans. And so 
if it's a German culture, if it's German speaking, the idea was, I'm not saying it was executed properly uh, or legitimate, but the idea was this is a German nation and we want Germans to be in the nation and have advantages because of Germans in the German nation. Well, does that mean fascism then to say if we're Americans, do we want advantages to citizens of America because they're in America and they want to be Americans? Or is that a Nazi thing? And we should say, well, if you in America and you think you're American and you want to be an American, then that means you're the bad guy. You need to be put down, shut up, canceled, or booted out. And if you disagree, then obviously you were the Nazi. So these terms that, and definitions that we thought we knew all over the place in politics, culture, economics, history, that all that is, you know, out the window. So it's difficult to forge an exchange of ideas when there's no connection whatsoever to what the terminology is. And you may consider eventually the person you're talking to as a bad faith operator. In other words, they're switching the definitions of the terms on purpose. And they're switching of the terms so that they can minimize, exclude, or otherize you. If they do that, then what kind of civilized cooperative model could be maintained? Yeah, and that's essentially uh, what it is that we're dealing with. We're, we're dealing with a confusion of language. We talked about language on the podcast, a confusion of language, terms, uh, definitions of words in order to break down the necessary communication methods that um, societies need in order to survive. And so um, the inevitable result of this type of fiddling with the language is going to be the destruction of whatever it is that's currently in place, which is the stated goal of administrations like Obama's um, to radically reform what they see as a evil, um, oppressive, racist uh, symbol of white supremacy, um, all those things as the way that they see the country. And the right just doesn't see the country that way. Um, Christians don't see the country that way. It doesn't make them bad people. It doesn't mean that they want to tie Christianity into um, some sort of theocratic government. It just means that Christians don't have a problem with the nation as one that functions on Judeo-Christian principle. And so they just naturally want to go back to that. They, they want to secure that. Uh, doesn't make them nationalistic in the sense of the term. Um, fascism, as defined, a way of organizing a society in which a government ruled by a dictator controls the lives of the people in which people are not allowed to disagree with the government. Um, so by definition, semi-fascist, um, you you kind of want a dictator? <laughs> maybe you want a dictator half the time and not the other half? Yeah, maybe you want uh, some sort of dictatorship that uh, functions like a dictatorship in some level um, and takes away most of the ability to disagree with governments. I mean, this just doesn't make any sense. The, the, the term semi-fascist doesn't make any sense. That's the point of it. it it's not sensical. And, we, and so when we use a term like that, what's the purpose in using a term, a nonsensical term like semi-fascist? The purpose is to equate a group of people with a negative connotation so that we can say, well, we certainly don't want a dictatorship in America. So we need to be against whatever this group of people is for because we know fascist is a bad word. And so we'll come up with a term like semi-fascism to make it a little bit more palatable when we stuff all these people in this group that we just concocted out of thin air. 
So nobody in their right mind would say that um, anybody, any group of people that have any legitimacy in the country wants to promote dictatorships or wants to uh, remove the right for you to disagree with the government. Um, if there are any groups in America that are supporting that type of uh, ideology, then they have no support by any major political group um, and certainly don't have anyone on the ballot uh, to be put into a position of power that would influence anything like this. Um, but we want to scare people into thinking that, oh, this group of people, uh, they're semi-fascist. So they have these ideas that um, they want to uh, control you and um, they, they want to impose their belief systems on you. It's just not true. Um, it's not factually true. Uh, but once again, here's the danger of us just deciding whatever we want to term things, whatever language we can use, whatever language we want. We can come up with a nonsensical term like semi-fascist. We can apply it to Jay Scott, and then we can get a whole group of people to hate Jay Scott because he's in this group that we just made up on thin air. So you have articles that I've read that are trying to um, back up the idea that um, MAGA Republicans or those who supported Trump are actually indeed factual semi-fascists. I've read several articles that have tried to make the case for this, um, uh, but they don't use words that are specific to the ideas of real fascism um, when they try to make this case. So semi-fascists can just be whatever you want it to. It's just, I don't like you, you're a semi-fascist. I don't like what the Bible says, so you're a Christian nationalist. Um, I don't like uh, white people in power. So if you're a white person and you're in power, then you're a white supremacist. Um, we create all these groups, shove everybody in there, and then tear down, uh, attempt to tear down the underpinnings of what we know as the nation by coming up with new definitions for terms and then characterizing people by these new definitions and then using that to tear down the fabric of, of, a, of a nation. Because um, as Jay Scott pointed out, I can't communicate with you on what semi-fascism even is because I don't know what it is because it's nonsense. So you can call me semi-fascist all day long, but if I voted for Trump, let's say, okay, so uh, in 2020, I voted for Trump. So did Jay Scott. 2016, I voted third party. Um, and by the way, Jay Scott used to be a, uh, a liberal Democrat and he's what he calls himself a ditch switcher. So he has switched for reasons that he's explained before. However, um, you know, is Jay Scott a semi-fascist because he voted for Trump? Or could he potentially have other reasons that he voted for Trump? Or maybe he doesn't like where the Democrat party went off the radical cliff. And so he wanted to, you know, he's not even a Christian, but he still wanted to pull back on the reins of where the party was going, uh, which a lot of people uh, felt the same way. The reason I voted for Trump wasn't because I was a huge fan of Donald Trump. It wasn't because I wanted to impose Christian theocracy on the nation. It was because I also, even though I have a different worldview than Jay Scott, I also didn't like how the country was deviating so far from the norm so fast. And I wanted to pull that back. And so um, I couldn't vote for a party who um, wanted to impose such radical agendas. Um, that doesn't make me a fascist or semi-fascist or Christian nationalist. We have to stop with the generalizing of false definitions um, because we can't even have a discussion about it. We can't, you know, we can't talk about why semi-fascism is bad because semi-fascism isn't happening. We can't talk about why white supremacy is bad because the, the current definition of white supremacy doesn't exist. So you have one group that's creating these definitions and 
shouting at other people and demonizing them, and the other group can't in a reasonable way defend themselves or discuss this because the terminology is made up. So it's very dangerous. It's called propaganda, and um, we need to be done with this type of stuff in the discourse of, of this country. We need to have real definitions for things. We need to understand what they are. Um, we need to be able to back that, that up with actual, real factual information, not false facts checkers, not uh, disinformation, uh, not creating definitions out of whole cloth. Um, we have to have real conversations with real words that have real meaning. And if, if we did that, we wouldn't be talking about semi-fascists. We also wouldn't be talking about white nationalism, uh, Christian nationalism, um, because what's at the core of those terms? Fascism is dictatorship, where disagreement with government is not allowed. We don't have that here. No one's trying to impose that. So when that's called out, the correction should be what is actually driving someone to vote for Trump or to vote for uh, Joe Biden? You know, when it gets down to it, what is, what is it, what's really behind that? And then we can have a conversation about what is really in the ideology that drives someone to want to have a government a certain way. And then you'll find, if you can have that conversation, that a Christian is merely somebody who wants a culture that has Judeo-Christian principles underpinning it, which are simple ideas that have been in place for centuries. And when we see that start to be broken down by people who don't like that, um, by people who want to change the fabric of the culture that has been in place for so long, and we speak out against that, then you should have a conversation back that engages with real ideas. So if I say, I want to have a culture that is based on male and female, then, and you don't, then we have to be able to discuss that as to why that is and what is actually best for culture and society. Um, and not just enable, label someone a Christian nationalist and then tell everybody that we should hate them or, or we should throw them off Twitter or, or we should ban them from disagreement because that's actually what fascism is. If I disagree with you and you tell me that I'm not allowed to disagree with you, then that's a fascist principle. So we shouldn't be engaging in that. But I don't see Christians as the one who is who are engaged in telling people that they can't disagree. I see that as what's going on with people who are against the Judeo-Christian principle. Um, so if we can have real discussions, um, maybe we can get to real solutions. Uh, and that's what Up Your Dialogue really is about. That's what we're trying to get to. That's why we, so, that's why we focus on language, specifics, definitions, terms, these type of things, what they actually mean, because these are important. Um, from the Christian worldview, I think that the meanings of things actually come from objective sources outside of ourselves. That's what the Christian worldview is about. Um, and my view, if you really want to understand what, a, what an actual Christian thinks about these things, at a high level, if you leave it up to human beings to just make this stuff up as we go and decide whatever we want to implement on any given day, based on however we feel in that moment, then um, you're going to have real problems. And you're not going to have a successful society. And that's not a society that I particularly want to surround myself because objectively speaking, I want my rights to come not from Joe Biden, not from Barack Obama, not from Donald Trump, not from Marjorie Taylor Greene, not from J. Scott Harden, not from L.A. Londi, because that's not good. <laughs> um, human beings are never good with this stuff. Uh, look at the French Revolution. So what I want is I want a standard set of principles that are agreed upon that cannot be changed, cannot be messed with, 
that are outside of ourselves uh, that we base our morality on because that is what creates a successful, prosperous nation. Um, the most prosperous nation that has ever been seen is the United States. Uh, it was Great Britain back when they had some sort of binding principles that they agreed upon. That's what a nation is. We have to come together. We have to agree on a certain set of principles and then move forward as a nation. That's what it's all about. And when you can't even get the basics of communication down, you can't even agree on what a word means, then you have no chance at a successful society. And I think as a Christian, from a Christian worldview, that it's best that we understand that those things come from outside of ourselves because then we can't just change them into whatever we want them to be. Yeah, as far as these terms and definitions go, I'll leave the last term and definition to one that is very dear to me which is the word science. And as an agnostic, an agnostic truly on a journey could still be accused of relying upon the science too heavily. Not lightly enough, but too heavily. Because we think that scientific law, as we understand it, is a final arbiter of reality. And some non-believers err too far in this and claim that science has every answer to every problem and is therefore an every explanation to the nature of the universe. And what I mean by science is the modern, the early modern tradition established by certain enlightenment thinkers of the 16th and 17th centuries. And it was Francis Bacon in particular, an English scientist, who put forward what we now colloquially refer to as the scientific method. And when you're encountered with a problem don't know the answer to it, gather what knowledge you have in terms of rules, suggest an idea or a hypothesis, conduct careful and repeatable observations, and have that lead you to, if it really is repeatable, demonstrable, provable, have that lead you to a new understanding or rule, and then use that later to create something even more effective, more knowledgeable, and more resourceful, and continue to do that. And in today's world, when we can't agree on terms and definitions, it's not clear to me what science means anymore. And this came to light during our global encounter with COVID, which some of which we covered on this podcast as it was unfolding. But here we have scientists concluding, in the absence of careful, repeatable, demonstration that there is a crisis somewhat akin to the Black Plague, and we're all going to die unless we take whatever injection from whatever pharmaceutical authority, and unless we listen to whatever appointed medical authority, and unless we do the thing required of us immediately. So public discussion is mostly out the window, and a scientific process unfolding along the guidelines of the scientific method to which we inherit from modern world uh, and its experimentation and observation is all out the window because new ideas come now, and if you don't listen to the authority figure, you'll lose your job. Your kid won't be able to go to school. You're immoral and evil if you don't do the right thing. And the right thing is a moving guidepost that changes every other week. Is it supposed to be one mask? Oh no, for sure two is going to cut it. Well, actually, now that we think about it, three is better. But actually, no, two is needed. But then we don't need them anymore whatsoever, except in some liberal places where we do, except even they don't, but we'll see. But whatever you picked was the wrong thing because it wasn't five minutes ago. 
mask mandates, vaccine requirements. The scientific community has let us down by becoming a woke scientific community. And people will accuse me of not believing in science, and there they greatly misunderstood me because I'm more inclined to err on the side of a scientific method process than not. In other words, raising my hands to the universe and saying, I don't know, but I have faith and this is how it works, isn't the strong point of an agnostic. They want data. They want observation. They want some some means of measuring the universe, the planet, the people, the facts of it, and the data points of it, to then be able to hold on to and say, this frame of reference, I can understand. This frame of reference has been demonstrated. If you don't understand or agree that it's been demonstrated, then you test it. And don't test it right now. Test it next week or have tested it last week. The result is repeatable, and therefore we can use it as something to hold on to instead of just lifting our hands up to the universe and saying, I, I don't understand, uh, and I need to, and I'm going to believe some larger story that it's explanatory as to how things work. It seems to me that this is where we've been led with the scientific community. If you don't believe this, and we just found our result five minutes ago, and we admit that we don't know the answer, but you better do it, or you're evil, and do it now, or you're anti-science, then something has been lost as to what science means. And in the case of a fascist, the previous uh, term in question, a person that has dictatorial powers over their people and for which opposition is not possible, to me that sounds like a description of the Elizabeth I of England. A British queen was well known to not necessarily get along with Catholics because they're not English and wasn't necessarily likely to brook opposition when it came to undermining her power or authority over her government, that's when you were going to get burned, executed. Was that a fascist? Is any ruler a single monarchical one-person ruler of, a, of any group of people? Is that a fascist? Is it people who believe, you know, that bonds tie them to the neighbors around them? Is that a fascist? Let alone a semi-fascist. Who knows? If you're a fascist half the time or only in some cases but not others, it seems to me that that would be the right kind of fascist to be or the right kind of anything to be would be put a semi in front of it and a dash because then you can be that way some of the time or not and it doesn't matter and it can't be proven and you don't know it sounds like we're semi-scientific and uh this is not acceptable ground for an agnostic and i hope even for believers in higher power and faith there was a certain understanding in modern times that faith and science are not antithetical, but our friends, kindred effects that can help build each other. They don't stand in opposition to each other. They're means of getting closer through multiple lenses to the heart of the matter, the truth of the matter, an objective truth about the matter even. And so it's a this notion of progress in that older tradition is steps that help you get further along the road along your journey. And that sounds exactly what a true agnostic is all about in the first place. Steps advancing along a journey, and the result of which is not yet clear. Uh, hence the journey part of being on a journey. So if science is out the window as to what that even means, and you have to follow it now because a government official told you you have to follow it now, although they'll change their mind next week because they have no idea, or not a complete picture by any means, and we have to keep reacting and being jerked around to it, this is not what science means. That's a a movable frontier with data and uh, knowledge that has not yet been acquired and is repeatable. So don't say it is and act upon that basis when it isn't. You have to wait to appreciate scientific laws 
and it doesn't come every five minutes because the popular culture of the AI algorithm public square said so, or some member of a deep state, or a nominated official, an unelected person, or somebody that is not mentioned in the Constitution and founding documents of our nation is then the decider of national policy. This is Fauci, or some librarian in an archives is telling the people of America and its executive officers who is in charge of intelligence or secret information. There's nothing about that in the Constitution that said it's up to the archivist or librarian or health official. There are branches of government established by our founding documents, and we've been warned, Eisenhower, a good example, Dwight Eisenhower, of the dangers of a military-industrial complex. Well, that's not the only large complex that exists. And so if we're going to say that a person in an archive decides what a president classifies or doesn't classify and why that is, is a sabotage of the Constitution. If you have a medical professional advising you and then you act in the nation's best interest, this is one matter. But if you have a, a, a nominated state official that isn't part of the Constitution informing you of policy and rules or you'll be fired or your children can't leave the house or you can't get an education or you're an evil person, then something in our founding documents and structure as a nation has clearly been lost. We should keep an eye out for that as we struggle with terms and definitions. Who is in charge of our country? What is a democracy? What does science mean? Apparently we can't even come to terms on what a man is anymore or a woman and who's to be involved in which sport and what scholarship. And if you feel like you're a woman and get some fairy dust, then it's not a recession. I don't know why people would be confused about things like that, but it does lead to acrimony, two sides pointing the finger at each other and saying, you, you are the bad guy because I just heard 20 different things None of which anybody knows what it means, but it has to be you that's the bad guy because that's what that because they said so. Some some unnamed sources said so. I love that. Even journalism isn't a attempt at a neutral reporting of facts anymore. It's speaking truth to power. So if you don't like the other guy, then you have an unnamed source that can say whatever they want, and it appears in whatever important media outlet like the Miami Herald, or ones that are far more important, like the New York Times, uh, uh, or CNN, or the Washington Post, or MSNBC, or ABC, and all the rest of it. Um, you heard it from there, and they heard it from an unnamed source who said that the deep state guy said that about somebody else. You're, you're unplugging the, the mechanism intended by the founding fathers of our nation to have a separate branches of government check and balance type of system where it isn't up to what you thought you heard that somebody said, but you can't say who it is because you might be uh, revealing sources and methods or for any other reason, and you're not good enough to know what this is, but you could trust us, your president, your Supreme Court justice, your congressperson is evil, and you know it because we heard that from somebody, uh, from some source that said so. This is not a way to proceed in a civil government. It's the opposite of what science is all about. And I remember in the case of this, uh, who decides what is secure and not secure and what is part, what is to be turned, returned from the government and which document is to be maintained. It was George Washington, our first president, who after his second term left to Mount Vernon and ordered an entire carriage from floor to roof filled with his documents, his papers, and other memorabilia from his eight years as president. And he assigned the army to escort this carriage 
to his home and told the officer in charge, if that carriage goes down in one of the rivers, so do you. That's George Washington. And then he took those papers to his house, sorted through them, and determined what he wanted to return to Congress and what he wanted to maintain. That's the precedent of the Founding Fathers. The first one, as first executive, did that. And it wasn't for some third party to come in fishing around in his wife's underwear drawer, Martha Washington, or mess around with his house, or show up with the government trying to fish around for what might be secure and not secure and appropriate and not appropriate. There is a history and a tradition to these things. And it started with that man, his first presidency, and a carriage of documents that he came and sorted through when and as he damn well pleased. That's what I have to say about that. Yeah, it's it's um, interesting to hear the ideas of an agnostic in that worldview um, understand the dangers of the problems with terms and definitions, uh, messing with those things, creating them however you want to. Um, you know, the science is what it is because not because it's been tested and understood through scientific method, but because Dr. Fauci said so. You know, Dr. Fauci is the science instead of the science being understood and data driven. This can be understood regardless of what your worldview is. Um, and when we see it being compromised, when Fauci says, you know, put on the mask. Oh, wait, don't put on the mask. Oh, wait, now put on the mask. And then he's asked why he flip-flopped around. Well, it's because, um, you know, in the beginning, we were short on masks. So I wanted to make sure that all the right people had the mask. That's not a scientific decision. That's a political decision. And so you've told us something that you said was science, but it wasn't science at all. It's just the science that you made up for the day because you're the expert, quote unquote, and we have to listen to our experts. You know, that sounds more fascist to me than a true understanding of science. Well, no, you just believe what the experts say. And if you don't fall in line with what the experts say, well, then you are going to be judged for that and removed from the public discourse. Um, that, to me, sounds more like a semi-fascist approach by, approach by definition uh, than what we're being told uh, by propagandists. Um, uh, one of the interesting things I think that's happening uh, in, um, in Italy, uh, as um, Georgia Milani is, I believe that's how you pronounce her name, is about to, seems anyway, is about to be elected as uh, leader of that country. And she's seen as being on the, quote, far right, unquote, um, uh, and is being called out by the American um, media as the new fascist leader of Italy or, or fascist leader because she's being pegged as being on the far right. Um, there's another definition of what is a far right, um, what is composed of the far right as opposed to the far left. So if you believe that, you know, man is a man and a woman is a woman, does this put you on the far right? Um, if you believe that we shouldn't abort babies, does this put you on the far right? Um, you know, is the platform of... Uh, Georgia Milani, far right platform. Um, and what constitutes that? I mean, these are definitional things that are important um, because calling someone a far right is basically the same thing as calling them a semi-fascist. Um, so what does that actually mean? Well, we don't care about what the meaning of it is. We're just going to, doesn't even really matter what your actual platform is. Um, we're just going to call you this term so that we can put you in a bucket 
and make sure that everyone hates you and, and that you've been removed from the public discourse. Um, that's the key. That's the, that's the motivation behind it. Um, so this is really what we don't like. Um, uh, we've come together here and understood this is not what we want to see the country go to. We don't want to see it become a place where um, you, you, you can't simply just stand for your principles um, any longer because those are seen as some kind of far right fascist, nationalist thing. Um, we need to act with specific definitional words that we can use to communicate and get along with um, and understand our fellow countrymen. And um, the, course, uh, the course that we are on, on currently is not one that promotes that. So on the Up Your Dialogue podcast, we are not for um, the redefinition of terms and ideas because that's bad for the country. And if that makes us nationalists, then so be it. Um, and if in addition to that, in addition to wanting specific uh, things that are good for the nation, in addition to that, I happen to be of uh, Christian in my faith, and you want to call me a Christian nationalist, well, then we should probably all get on the same page with what that is, or what a semi-fascist is, or what a white supremacist actually is, and then really understand what these terms are and apply them where they need to be applied if they're actual legitimate terms, but not apply them in cases where they shouldn't be applied. Um, it was not a scientific fact that wearing a mask during the COVID-19 pandemic um, was, it's not proven scientifically that, um, that that was something that helped you not catch COVID or not pass on COVID. It just simply wasn't. And the scientific community told us it was, and that wasn't true. And we, we have to understand that um, those type of truths need to be known and understood and communicated. If we're going to have any kind of trust in, quote, the science, or if we're going to have any trust in government um, at all anymore, then we have to get back to definitions, terms that we all can agree on, that makes sense, and that we can communicate. Otherwise, you won't be able to build any trust in any kind of institution. And if you're not able to do that, then you don't have a country. Terms and definitions, my friends. Take it easy when you mess with the science, because that is an area where people of any faith or non-faith should be able to find common ground and come to terms. When you mess with the science, you're taking people of faith and non-faith and all humans, and you're sabotaging one of the core areas where they could come together, not to say what things mean, but at least to agree upon what is, what happened. Uh, how does it work? And then people can draw their conclusions about, about what that means subsequently when they walk away and go home. But when you come to the town square and talk about science, you should follow the, here you should follow the tradition of how we've approached the scientific method. And when you jerk people around willy-nilly, you're going to have taken away one of the main one of the main improper intersections where people of all faiths and types of folk, could come together and at least say we can agree upon the following things. Every you might think it means something different. Another person might think that is in support or, or uh, a detriment to a deity or not. Uh, but at least we know this is how a particular thing works. And when you jerk around, the mask was a, a fine example of this. Was it meant to keep you from infecting the other guy? Was it meant for him to be not infecting you? And neither one of those turned out to be the case. But you were sure it is, and a person will be publicly condemned depending on where they stood on that line. It had really not much to do about established science. It had everything to do with, with a science of bias, 
a science of wokeness, the idea that science could be racial, it's a white science or a non-white science. It adds things to the scientific method that are not relevant, they're not helpful, they're divisive, and you are removing, as L.A. said in this case, a method of, of trusting the person near you that you're both following some certain basic set of rules that can be demonstrated, verified, shown, agreed upon, uh, or further explored if you don't agree upon them. So this is what could have happened to a real scientist that was a leader of a scientific community in modern times as we are today. You could correctly look at an audience and say, we don't know the answer, comma, yet. But these are the four things we're studying. And these are the two committees that are working on it. And this is the date when we're expecting results. And then we'll hash out what the results mean. Then there'll be a series of tests on if they can be repeated. Or a long-term study that says, hey, maybe this drug is efficacious and isn't something by some emergency decree that you have to swallow right now on pain of persecution. That kind of thing is the opposite of the way of anti-science. Uh, the opposite of the way of science, which I'll call an anti-science, uh, something that stands against how science works. And so I urge everyone to be a, more cautious, and it, in particular, I call to anyone who purports to be an actual scientist to follow the scientific method and not the jerk reaction based on political or any other uh, motive beyond the method that can demonstrate in a way that people can agree upon. Uh, if you don't do that, something something very important about the scientific process will have been lost. Yep, and um, the the idea that a Christian is opposed to science in some way is just not the case. So sometimes there's this, there's this idea that what J. Scott just laid out in regards to true science um, is something that if you're a person of faith, that you just you're against science in some way or or you just disregard science and scientific methods and, and these things, uh, you know, for supernatural faith-based stuff. That's um, not the case. The, the idea that science is a driver of everything that we know and can be included in truth claims is something that the Christian embraces. Of course, uh, we understand that, um, that the world was created, and so science is going to show that, but we don't have a problem with science. And so uh, if you did go to some back to some sort of Judeo-Christian principle normative culture, it wouldn't be opposed to science. It wouldn't be opposed to the understanding of the world in a scientific way. Um, it's just another myth uh, that gets tossed around out there. So uh, faith and reason and science can all come together in certain ways. And uh, we ought to be able to have those types of discussions. If we can keep them fact-based with proper terms and definitions, then that shouldn't be a problem. And that's really how we should all go forward as a nation. We should be able to talk about things within that type of context. And then, you know, if one group of people is doing something, the other group of people doesn't like it. You know, one group has the majority, the other group has to live with uh, what the majority wants. In general, Christianity, um, modern day, doesn't have a problem with this. And so this Christian nationalist idea that if this is an issue is, is also a myth. Um, so we can all agree, Christian and non-Christian, that terms and definitions are important. We have to stick with those and we have to all agree with what those terms. We don't have to agree on the result of how that plays out, but we at least have to agree on the terms and definitions that we're using um, 
to to make laws, to communicate, to interact. Um, and we're, we're clearly not there right now. And that's why our culture and our politics are in such disarray, um, because we're not even able to have a conversation on the basics, on the fundamentals of what the country is about. And that's really what America has been. Um, it's, it's a place that everyone could come from different nations, faith backgrounds, denominations, belief systems. But when they came here, they assimilated to the American ideal. And the American ideal was based on the principles of human beings being created equal and having rights given to them by a creator. And when you came to this country, you understood those principles, you understood our language, you learned the English language, and then you assimilated to those principles. It didn't mean that you agreed on everything. It didn't mean that you worshiped the same way necessarily, but you agreed to the basics of the principles of the country that you came to, assimilated to those things, and then move forward with the same type basic goals of the pursuit of happiness. Not that happiness was agreed was guaranteed to you, not that equity was going to be enforced and everyone was going to turn out to start and end at the same place, but that everyone had the opportunity to achieve the things that they wanted to achieve with a certain basic core freedom to do so, uh, with the ability to speak out, with, with freedoms to, to say what you wanted to say within reason, um, and to believe what you wanted to believe. Um, and those things weren't questioned for the majority of the time that our, our country has been in existence. Those things are being questioned now. Those things are being attacked now. And that's the backlash that you see from people on the right, people that are, that are religious, that are, whether you're Catholic, Protestant, whatever it is that you are, you have a basic system of beliefs that's being challenged. And those beliefs that are being challenged are really the core of what underpins the society. And so the society itself is being challenged. And But it's not being challenged in a truthful way. It's being challenged in a way that is deceptive, that is propagandizing, uh, where you're not being told truths that make sense. This is what makes people uneasy. Um, when you say you have the science and then you don't, when you say that you are an expert, but then you're not, <laughs> uh, when you say you've checked the facts and you're a fact checker, but you're clearly not telling the truth, or not searching for the facts. When you're making up terms and definitions as you go along, there's no trust that can be built there. There's no way that we can move forward um, with that American ideal of melting pot, where we're assimilating together. Instead of assimilating, we're breaking off into groups and hating each other. It just isn't gonna work. So we have to find a better way, and the better way forward is to agree on the basics, be able to communicate what those basics are, and then understand where, where our agreements and disagreements are within that framework. Um, so we can actually function as a nation. Um, so I think that's been the basic of this podcast. Uh, any final words? I just wanted to thank listeners for tuning in. And uh, terms and definitions are not as simple or as easy as maybe they appear to be or should be. So that is a problem to be uh, explored and worked out and get everyone at least to common ground enough to have a dialogue. And also uh, to the listeners, we intend to be back more often moving forward. So keep an eye out for us maybe next week. And thank you. So ho hopefully it has been beneficial for you to hear something on a topic from people who may not have the same lens, but can communicate and can come to actually some agreements.
on uh, you know what's good for the country, what's good for us as a nation. Um, it is possible. With some good dialogue, uh, we can get there. But we have to be able to agree on, on the basics of language, terms, definitions within that language um, for that to be possible. Uh, we hope everyone has a good week, and um, we look forward to uh, seeing you on the next one.